friends, if you would turn with us, please, to the book of Titus. We are in Titus chapter 2 this morning. As is my habit, I'm going to pray just one more time as we open up the Word of God. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use the one in the chair beneath you, in front of you. We'll have Scripture on the screen as well to help you along. But Heavenly Father, what a beautiful day it has been to lift you up, to glorify you, to be with the people of God. What a breath of fresh air it is to join in the presence of God with the people of God. And may you continue, Father, your work in your glory inside of our lives. Father, we continue to pray for our culture and our world around us and the decisions that will be made this week by the citizens of this state and this nation. God, we lift these things up before you. We ask, God, above all else that you would be glorified and your will would be done. Father, we pray for good to be done, God's kind of good to be done. And God, grant us as your church the grace and the courage and the wisdom and the love to be able to live out the way of Christ in our world, come what may. And Father, we ask your continued grace upon our time this morning. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for worship. Thank you for your word. We pray that you would fill all of it with your voice and your grace this morning. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Titus chapter 2 in this hopefully surprisingly wonderful little book that we're spending some time in right now. Friends, the grace of God is a powerful thing. Grace of God is a powerful thing. We as followers of Jesus Christ, we use that term a lot. We read that term a lot inside of Scripture. And it turns out that it's going to play a very important role inside of the book of Titus for us as well. Typically, when we define grace, what do we mean by grace? We usually use this phrase that grace is unmerited favor. God gives us a gift or a grace that we don't deserve. It is unmerited favor. Grace is how we become children of God. Salvation itself is a gift from God. It is a work of the grace of God. And all of this is true, that God gives us this gift. But there is more to the work of grace inside of Scripture. Scripture also talks about the kinds of things that grace does. It's not just a gift given, but it is a power that is at work inside of our lives. In fact, I believe the more that we understand grace, the more we want it, the more we realize we need it, and the more we want to live our lives by the grace of God. It isn't just for the brand new Christian. I believe the older a Christian gets, the more mature a Christian gets, the more they want to consume grace, the more they need the power of the grace of God. It's important for us to begin with a thought like this because Titus chapter 2 feels very practical to us. So you read through this chapter, we're going to read very specific things about the lifestyles of men and women, parents and kids, young men, young women, and so on and so forth. We're going to read very practical things about the shape of Christian households. But it begins with Paul reminding Titus to preach doctrine, sound doctrine. 
And it ends with the Apostle Paul laying out the doctrine of grace and reminding Titus one more time, devote yourself to these kinds of things. So what we see inside of Titus chapter 2 is something that if we pay attention to it, we actually see in all of the epistles. Paul says that what we believe about God is directly connected to the way that we behave with each other. The kinds of priorities that we have in our relationships with each other, inside of our families, our friend circles, the church of God, and the rest of the community as well. So in this chapter, these ideas are going to help us make sense of what Paul writes to Titus. First of all, doctrine is the foundation of the life of the Christian. What we believe and how we live are two sides of the same coin. Our behavior will always follow what we truly believe. This is an important reality about our lives and even about you and I understanding ourselves. The way that we behave is going to come naturally out of what we truly believe about things. We may say we believe certain things about relationships and priorities and on and on, but then our behavior tells us what's really going on inside of the core of our hearts and our minds. So doctrine is the foundation of the life, the lifestyle of the Christian. Secondly, the Christian family and home are witnesses of the grace of God. Recall that Paul has left Titus on the island of Crete. He told Titus, I need you to put things in order that have not been completed or finished yet. I need you to appoint elders who look like this, who act like this, who are more like Christ than their previous sin nature. And we talked a little bit about that Cretan culture and what an absolute mess it was. The Cretan culture was really bad for the family, really bad on the family. It encouraged all kinds of dysfunction. Everything that you could imagine about how a family could go wrong or could go bad was common inside of Crete, from polygamy to adultery to young children living rebellious lifestyles. I wonder if there's anything for us to learn in a book like this right now. So Titus is intended to guide the church in this new way of life, in the new kind of household that's being created by the grace of God. And Titus is intended to guard God's design for marriage in the home. So the Christian family, the Christian home, becomes a witness to the grace of God. And then the way that Paul ends, these, these moments happen inside of his epistles. He's going along about something that either feels very practical or very hard to understand, but Paul then pauses and he gets... Um, he gets all poetic and majestic about the grace and the power and the majesty of God, and that's exactly what happens at the end of Titus chapter 2. Paul tells us that God's grace is our guarantee of the future hope. God's grace and salvation, God's grace and the transformation of our lives guarantees us our complete, eternal, final vision of Jesus Christ. This is the power of the grace of God. So it is for our daily living. It is for our future hope. When Jesus shows up, we will see him in all of his glory because we have been kept by the grace of God. 
and we have been trained by the grace of God. This is the language that Paul uses in our passage this morning. Well, let's jump into it. The letter of Paul to Titus, chapter 2, verse 1. Friends, this is the word of the Lord this morning. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be, in, be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Throughout all of these instructions has been this note that Paul rings two or three times in these ten verses. This is our behavior now in Jesus Christ so that God may be honored, so that people will not look at us and despise God. This is the work of our lives. This is the church of Christ. This is the work of the grace of God among his people. So we jump back to the thought in verse 1. He turns to Titus and he says, But as for you, Paul just got done telling Titus and the church elders to avoid the silly Jewish mythologies that were being spread amongst the church and to counteract and to avoid the false teaching that was coming from the Cretan culture as well. He said all those false teachings out there, and the church needs to be able to counter it and deal with it. All these silly mythologies are out there, and the church needs to be able to, to, to push it out of its congregation. But as for you, he says in chapter 2, verse 1, I need you to teach sound doctrine. So this is Titus's job now. This is the job of the spiritual leaders and elders inside of the church. This is the job of the older men and women that he talks to here in chapter 2. And it is to preach sound doctrine. So when this church hears Titus talk, when this church hears Titus teach the word of God, preach the word of God, give um, direction and reproof even, as Paul says later on in this chapter, What they need to hear is the truth of Scripture. Titus's words, the words of the leaders inside of the church, need to be leading the church in the way of God, the truths of God. Sometimes that involves countering the the narrative that is in the world around us, but it always means explaining and magnifying who God is out of the Word of God. This is our job. So friends, sound doctrine is where the healthy church finds its foundation. I worry sometimes that there are some churches out there this morning 
may not be concerned all that much with sound doctrine, but Paul tells Titus, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to pay attention to. This is an important part of the normal rhythm of the people of God, that we are on a regular basis sometimes reorienting ourselves, sometimes correcting the things inside of us, sometimes encouraging what God is doing inside of us by, on a regular basis, returning to the Word of God in prayer, listening to what God has to say, listening to what God has preserved for us in the Word of God. We do these kinds of things, Christian, on a daily basis. And then on our regular sort of weekly pattern, we're returning to the people of God. So that again, we hear the word of God, we gather to worship, we remind ourselves of these things, that the teaching of sound doctrine becomes a regular part of the rhythm of the people of God. Whatever the pattern looks like, we gather to worship and to hear the word of God. Because friends, in the end, this is all about Jesus. This is all about Jesus. This is not about me. This is not about culture. This is all about Jesus. I do not have the power to change your mind or to change your heart. It is Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that does that. So I would be shortchanging the church of Jesus Christ if I told you what Phil wants you to do. It is the work of God. It is sound doctrine. It is scripture that does this. And this has been the pattern of the church from the very beginning. We go all the way back to the establishing of the early church in the book of Acts. At the end of Acts chapter two, the story, the starting of the church, verse 42, it says this about the rhythm of the church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to breaking of bread and the prayers. This is what they devoted themselves to. It is in this kind of context where we learn the practicalities of our lived faith. It is out of the doctrine of Scripture that we learn how to live. It is out of the principles that God teaches us that you and I learn how to live and walk in this world, to think and respond and react and emote and relate. What does marriage mean? We get our direction from Scripture. What has God said and done about human sexuality? We get our direction from Scripture. What about my money? What about my time? What about the issue of abortion? What about my talents? What about my gifts? What about my relationships? We receive our direction from the Word of God first. Scripture and sound doctrine become our authority. And if these things are not our authority, you have to answer the question, then what is? What are you following? How sound is it? How reliable is that person, that ideology? Because we are living from some authority somewhere, somehow. And for the follower of Jesus Christ, it has to be the word of God and sound doctrine. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then Paul immediately walks into the household. He walks into the generations of people that are coming to Jesus Christ. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. So Paul immediately begins to talk about the kinds of lives that these followers of Jesus Christ should be leading. So he speaks first to older men and to older women. 
the patriarchs and the matriarchs of the home, and by the extension, the patriarchs and the matriarchs of the rest of the community and the culture as well. And when we read a list like this, and there are several of them in Scripture that speak to the way that Christians should be living and behaving and relating, when we read a list like this, we always have to keep in mind that this list is in contrast to what is going on in the world around them. And for these people who are first-generation Christians, many of them have been saved at an older age, and they've brought this old way of life with them. Paul is saying, and Titus is teaching, we now have a new way of life. And so we follow Christ this way because it's so different than the life you used to lead. That's the lens that we use. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. Instead of parents and grandparents who were drunk, embarrassing, unreliable, gossips, cruel, Christians need to look like this. Life has changed. These are the virtues now that guide our lives. These are the values now that we live by. The world has a different set of values. The world has a different set of answers as to what does the family look like. God's design, God's word, the teaching that comes from the church says it looks like this, and this is what our lives need to look like. And remember, on the island of Crete, we had two great big problems during Paul's day and age. The culture in Crete was violent and sexually immoral. Again, I know the word of God is not applicable at all anymore to us, but we just have to go through these things. A culture that's violent and sexually immoral. Paul says, Titus, you need to teach sound doctrine, and the people of God start living like this. So the mature Christians, so to speak, a mature Christian should develop a Christ-like character. Okay, so this is very straightforward. But it's so incredibly important. He is speaking about well-developed characters that over time have learned the goodness of the way of God, that over time have learned that the sin that used to control them, the sin that is still present inside of their hearts and minds is distasteful and harmful, and they would rather glorify God by what they do than indulge the sin nature any longer. And this is a process, friends. And he says, I need moms and dads and grandparents to look like this instead. Their souls have paid attention to their spiritual formation. They've paid attention to their discipleship. And the fruits of the Spirit have started to replace the knee-jerk reactions of sin. Now think about that for a second. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. My goodness, who doesn't want that life? But here's what's possible by the grace of God, that things like the fruit of the Spirit, things like the list that we have just read, by the grace of God, becomes what we want to do 
instead of wanting to live according to our sin nature anymore. These virtues of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit, become our knee-jerk reactions to the world instead of the dysfunction and the vice of sin. See, God is at work doing something powerful in the lives of his children. One of the difficult things that every now and then I confront as a pastor is someone who is near the end of their earthly life who is locked, and I mean locked, into bitterness, anger, ingratitude, frustration. That's a very difficult conversation to have. That's a very difficult relationship to walk into and try to help. When someone who became bitter and angry in their 30s, it was like putting a train on those tracks. They never got off of it. They were bitter in their 30s, and when they hit their 80s, they're really bitter. Because this is what happens to our characters. We habituate these kinds of things into our souls. And the goodness of God doesn't happen by magic when we turn 65. It's the grace of God that pulls us off of those tracks and puts us on a different path. It's the grace of God that takes the heart that is hurt and broken and angry and bitter in their 30s, and by the time they've hit their 60s, 70s, and 80s, all they are are grateful and thankful and full of joy and peace and the grace of God. This is what God does. This is what he is doing inside of us. This is what Paul says, teach these things. Lead people in this kind of direction. The church needs to be filled with characters that can be replicated in younger generations. The church needs these kinds of souls and lifestyles. The community around us needs these kinds of souls and lifestyles. Some of the language in these lists that struck me, some of it's important to the New Testament altogether. Paul keeps saying in this passage that we read, I need them to be self-controlled. I need them to be self-controlled. It happens four times inside of this chapter. If you're the kind of person who does Bible studies and takes words and tracks them through Scripture, I'd encourage you this week, just sit down with that word or that term, self-controlled, and track it through the New Testament epistles, and you're going to find it all over the place. It means to be in your right mind. It means to be in control of yourself. It means, in a scriptural context, to be guided by the mind of Christ. Inside of its immediate context, it almost always means, instead of being drunk or drugged up, God gave you a mind, use it. It's almost always what it means. Because those other things impair the gift that God has given you. So I need you to be in control of that instead of losing control of it. One of the things that he says to older men is that older men need to be steadfast. The pillars of their home, the pillars of the places where they work, the pillars of the church where they are involved. He says, I need older men to be reliable. I need older men to be morally and emotionally stable. 
and they act like and they live like what they have become, the foundation of the lives of other people. I need older men to be steadfast. Churches need Christ-like, stable, steadfast men in it. He speaks to older women, and one of the interesting things that strikes me is he says that older women need to teach what is good. Older women need to become sources of wisdom and insight. Instead of being known, and this is part of how Paul puts it in our passage, instead of being known for gossip and slander and triteness, they have become a source of good teaching in the Christian home and in the Christian world. This is what I need older men to look like. This is what I need older women to look like. So that they can train younger men, excuse me, younger women and then younger men. He goes on to put it like this, verse 4, and so train young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, there's that word again, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled. The older generations are intended by Paul to train the younger, to live ahead of the younger, to be guides for the younger. God has actually established this very thing in the patterns of families and churches. So we see this, younger Christians should put their habits, should put habits in place that will make them more like Christ. The kinds of spiritual habits that you build when you are younger are just going to start developing your life and your character. The book of Proverbs, the book about wisdom, you may or may not know that the book is written like a letter from mom and dad to their kids. The first seven verses of Proverbs chapter 1 is an introduction to the book, and then the meat gets started, so to speak, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, and here's how it goes. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. And if you read Proverbs, especially in the first several chapters, that language is there over and over and over again. I need you to listen to what mom and dad have to say. There's even a passage that says, I need you to hear what your grandparents have to say to you. We listen to these characters that have been guided by God and we follow them. As we noted a little bit last time, as we paid a little bit more attention to the reputation and the lifestyle in Crete, younger women in Crete had a reputation of philandering. They slept around a lot, of living frivolous lives without settling down and either working in the home or even outside of the home. They were just living frivolous lives and they lacked self-control. So everything that Paul says here, again, contradicts the Cretan lifestyle and says there's a different, there is a better way. And the plan of God is good. Now, friends, we live in a culture that has made it offensive to talk about women who raise children and have a relationship with their husbands that involves the kind of submission that God talks about to godly husbands. Let me say it from behind the pulpit, and I'm going to escape out the side door here after we're done anyway. But there is nothing wrong. There is nothing out of date. There is nothing prejudicial about this point of view. None of it. 
And notice this as well. He says women who are working inside of the home, and he means the home, the household, the children, and all of that. But we see inside of Scripture from Proverbs chapter 31 to the women who helped lead the church in the book of Acts, we see women in industry as well. I need them active, engaged. I need them leading their home. I need their training their kids. And then Paul says one thing to young men. Is it because young men, by and large, are controllable and easily to, easy to handle, and they're just born virtuous? I see some young men nodding their heads, yes, that's why. <laughs> it's because I think most of the advice parents give teenage boys boils down to, would you get control of yourself? The young men in Crete, remember, it's a violent and sexually immoral place. Cretan warriors were known as mercenaries in Paul's day. They were violent, unreliable drunks. So this piece of advice is applicable to every young man all the time. Learn to control yourself. Friends, there is a biblical model of manhood that makes the absolute best out of a man's desire to protect and provide and build and create, but then fills that life with the virtues of Jesus Christ. The biblical model of manhood and womanhood doesn't blur any of those lines, but takes what God has built inside of us and fills them with the virtues of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is doing and what he's asked Titus to do is this. Titus leads them in God's design for the home and how that design needs to be filled with the character of God. Marriage was the first institution created by God. God's intention that it be between one man and one woman. It's the first layer of civilization it's the first layer of economy. It's the first layer of government in God's design. But like every institution, when God's moral law is rejected, dysfunction will reign. And like it did in Crete and like it will do in the world that we live in, when God's law is rejected. Paul, at this point, as he's writing to Titus, here's how I want the people in the church to begin to look. He turns again to Titus there in verses seven and eight. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So Paul tells Titus, I need you to lead the way as you appoint elders and you preach in the church and teach them, making sure that your teaching and your life line up with all of this. And it helps to create this atmosphere where the generations that are inside of the church begin to see this desirable lifestyle. This is how I want to live. And he mentions here again the opponents of the word of God. So thinking about the opponents of the gospel, in the end, they're going to say whatever they want to say. They're going to do whatever they want to do. In essence, Paul is telling Titus, just don't let any of it be true. 
I mean, unless you're being accused of being too much of a Christian or loving Christ too much or being devoted to him over the things of the world, if you're in, you're, if you're in trouble for that, that's fine. But don't let any of the rest of it be true by the way that you speak and by the way that you live. And then Paul addresses bond servants as well in verses 9 and 10. This kind of topic sometimes is a little touchy for us. We might read through a passage like this and go, I don't know exactly what to do with this. But it's a reality inside of the Roman world. It's a reality in the world where these people lived. So people on the island of Crete who are being saved out of the Roman culture, they're bringing their daily life with them. They're bringing the structure of their lives with them. It's not as if the structure of their entire home changed overnight. All of that's the same the next morning when they wake up. And many of them in the island of Crete and throughout the Roman world, if you had a household, if you could be called a patriarch or a matriarch, you probably had servants inside of that home. Some of them would have been what we would call indentured servants. So they're working off a debt, but they are living in your home as servants. And there's plenty of slavery inside of the Roman world as well. But part of the glory of what happens with the early church is that all of these people are being saved. The leaders of these households are being saved. Their families are being saved. And those who are servants and slaves are being saved as well. So what Paul does and what the New Testament ends up doing is they addressed the present context and they addressed the future goal as well. In every situation we find ourselves, we need to behave like Christ and not like our sin. No matter how ideal or not ideal or unjust that situation is, Paul and the rest of the New Testament says we need to act more like Christ and less like our sin. So Paul addresses the present context. Christians then, through the rest of the New Testament as well, lead the way in fixing structures that are full of sin and evil. And this is throughout Scripture, actually from beginning to end. It's in the New Testament epistles a little bit more obviously for us, especially in the little book that Paul writes to um, Onesimus or writes to Philemon about Onesimus. In that little book, he begins to plant really obvious seeds. We're no longer keeping or treating people as slaves or treating them as brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul deals with the life that they're living now, and he also begins to deal with here's how things start to change. And all of this, Paul is making his case through Timothy and through the rest of the church for a brand new kind of household and a brand new kind of family. Not only do Christians believe that God's design is right and good, but they strive, we strive to live lives that are filled with the Spirit being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We work for homes and for churches like these because they glorify God and because they bear witness to Jesus Christ. But then we also understand where all this comes from. Because Paul has told Titus, I need you to teach what is true. And so we understand how and why this happened. And that's where he goes in the last few verses of Titus chapter 2. Beginning in verse 11, Paul says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Whosoever will, if anyone believes in Jesus Christ, they have access to the grace of God. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory and the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. What is the grace of God doing as Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is present and at work inside of the church? Christ is purifying us for himself. This is how much Christ loves the church. This is why the Holy Spirit is at work within us, to purify us, making us more like Christ for himself so that as he draws his bride, his church, his children closer to himself and eventually into his presence, there we stand, forgiven and clean and pure in the presence of Christ because of the work and the love and the power of Christ. Friends, it's an incredible thing that the grace of God does. After all of this practicality, after all of this language, if I need you to behave like this and like this and not like this anymore, why? Why? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce all of that, helping us as we walk through this life guaranteeing our presence with Christ when he appears, purifying us for himself. It's incredible. God's grace makes all the difference. This doctrine changes our lives in ways that many of us may not even know yet. He says God's grace brings salvation. This is that unmerited favor. This is that gift that God gives to us, not because we are good, but because he is. Salvation is available to everyone who will believe in Jesus Christ. We are saved by his grace when we put our trust in Jesus. We do not, we cannot make that happen under our own power. Salvation from sin, salvation from hell, is a gift from God, pure and simple, made available to everyone, Paul says. This is the goodness and the power of the grace of God. God's grace brings salvation. And then to use a word that Paul uses in this passage, God's grace trains us in Christ-likeness. So the grace of God, again, is not just an initial injection of grace and we no longer need it anymore. We've got it. And then we just move through this life until we die or Christ comes. Awesome. That's not how grace works. It is the power of God inside of us changing us in ways that we cannot accomplish ourselves. We can't make any of this happen. But this is why the grace of God has been given to us. 
It is an active power. The grace of God is an active power. It is the work of God turning us into the kind of people that we can never become by our own strength and wisdom. He is purifying for himself his own people. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says something very similar about grace. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be both, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Christian, grow in the grace of God. There's more to be had. Christ wants to give more. The Spirit of God wants to pour himself out more and more into the hearts and lives of his people so that we become more like Christ and so that the world around us sees more and more of Jesus Christ. We cannot grow complacent with where we are. We need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what enables us to become sound in faith and love, to be able to teach what is good, to become steadfast, self-controlled, pure. It is the grace of God. Part of what's so beautiful about this doctrine is that God does not lay these expectations out at our feet and then expect us to check all of these boxes off, meet all of these marks, and then we're right with God and might make our way into heaven. He doesn't do that. All of these things he lays out before us, he says, this is me, this is my character, these, is, these are the fruit of my spirit. I need you to draw near to me. I need you to take this relationship, this walk with me seriously. And then I will become more evident in you. These are the people, as Paul says, who are zealous for good works. God changes our hearts. He changes what we want. He changes the way our lives look so that we honor and glorify him. And then, friends, I hope this is encouragement and strength to any fear or worry or anxiety that sits inside of our hearts. God's grace secures our future hope. Waiting for the blessed hope of the appearing the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Through it all, this is what we do by the grace of God. We are anticipating the blessed hope, the sure and future thing that God will do with his children, and we will see our Savior face to face. May this truth overwhelm us this week. The follower of Jesus Christ looks forward to the day when Christ will appear and we will see him in all of his glory and be with him forever. Maybe you think everything in this world is going fine and great and you don't need a future hope. I need a future hope. Friends, this... What we're talking about now, the blessed hope that there is only in Jesus Christ. What the grace of God does, preparing us for that and leading us to that point, this is the final answer to the human condition. This is the final answer to the human condition. Friends, paradise exists. 
but it's not on this earth and it will never be created by human power. It only happens in the presence of Jesus Christ. A life that is free from sin and death, a life that is free from pain and loss, can only be found in Christ and his eternity. The only justice that there is in this world in the end is secured by the holiness, the righteousness, and the power of God. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. So churches, we listen to what Paul writes to Titus and to us. We need to learn to teach these things to one another, to value these kinds of things, love these things, learn these things in the word of God, and then let these things change our lives so that the world sees more of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, my God.